Kia ora. Where do you store random objects of potential practicality? The batteries, plasters and paper clips you accumulate in life. This podcast is pretty much that place. You have opened the audio drawer. Here we're hoarding recordings for New Zealand Baptists. Because one day... This episode could be just the thing. George Wheeland, director of the Cary Centre for Mission Research, opens Acts 13, 1-3, bringing light to the relating, relocating and relearning that needs to take place for effective mission. This is Positioning Our Leadership for Mission, a recording of George's keynote at the Baptist National Hui 2019, Kia Tupu Whakaritorito, Positioning Ourselves to Thrive. But the task that we've been given is positioning our leadership for mission. Now, I know I'm talking to leaders. Many of you are pastors. Others of you are in leadership roles in churches. And others might not have a formal role, but you are people whom others follow. And that's really what a leader is. I learned that in Yorkshire, where I was brought up. You can tell that by the accent, can you? (laughs) Yep, at the age of 13, I moved down to Yorkshire and began to learn a new language, cross-cultural experience. (laughs) <laughs> remember the first conversation, interactive, I had with a native. Um, I was sort of walking along, and this lad my own age shout, Hey, up, way off! And I thought, oh, grief, I need to check my, um, my phrase book of Leeds swear words. I'm sure it's in there. <laughs> he was being friendly. He was greeting me in public very loudly from across the street. Hey, up, way off! And which being translated is, hello. Where might you be going? (laughs) I just got scared. (laughs) Another friend lost before he was made. Um, However, I did learn some valuable things in Yorkshire. One was from um, a wonderful man, the Reverend Dr. Keith Jones, who hasn't been in New Zealand, so he does this self-promotion. Sorry, Keith, hope you're not watching. Um, Keith has um, recently helped me out a lot um, 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 when I had to go back to, to the UK uh, for a family matter, and, and Keith was, was, was a great guy. But he, he was a leader, leader of the Yorkshire Baptist Association, which is about the size of the New Zealand Baptist, a little bit bigger actually, more churches, more pastors. Um, and Keith was the head of this before moving on to, um, to, to higher things. And I remember him saying, Leading is difficult in Yorkshire. They're all very independent-minded. There's only one way to lead in this place, and that is find out where everybody's going and walk in front. (laughs) We might possibly have a Baptist ecclesiology there. (laughs) So that one's just for you, Charles, just again. But positioning our leadership for for mission. Now, um, I I just want to say before I start, some of you are going to fall asleep. Um, Because it is, let you know you've had a three-day hui. Um, I just arrived this morning, fresh and bright off the first flight. Um, And so, you know, you've been through a lot, you've been thinking a lot, um, it's beautifully balmy, it's warm, as Christchurch always is, so I've heard. And so some of you will 
fall asleep. So if that happens, moi mai ra. Moi mai ra roto You feel okay. Oh gosh, I was preaching once in Edinburgh and a lovely old lady of my church there um, who lived on her own. She was very elderly, but she liked to come to church and there was this service when uh, uh, it got, she got overpowered, not so much by the spirit, but by the lack of air, I think. <laughs> and I could see her nodding down. And then the real danger time when, when her head goes back, not forward. You know, head goes back, mouth opens. <laughs> astonishing, loud, reverberating snoring, you know, and various folk are looking at me and pointing to her and saying, and I'm saying, it's okay, carry on. Anyway, anyway, um, after the service, she's coming out quite bright, and she says to me, oh, George, that was such a lovely service. <laughs> Just what I needed. <laughs> so we know it says in Scripture that the Lord gives to His beloved rest. So if that's the gift you need right now, receive it with gratitude, and I won't take offense at all. Um, I'll be fine. But for those who are about to fall asleep in, say, three minutes, Here's the talk, okay? I'll give you the talk now so that you can then fall asleep and the rest of you might think, oh, well, I might do that myself. Um, how do we position our leadership for mission? I'm looking at the book of Acts. And what I'm wanting to do is ask, in this book of Acts, where are the great mission success stories? And I don't want to look at those, okay? But I want to know where they are so that we can roll back the tape and ask what was in place so that those successes could eventuate. In other words, what was in position so that there might then be those successes that we read about. And when we look at the positioning, a number of themes come through. It's about people, it's about place, and it's about participation. And the message that is on my heart to leave is that as leaders who are positioning yourselves and your churches for mission, it's about people, so work at relating, relating to all people, but particularly to the types of people and the diverse types of people whom God is drawing into the work of His mission in our place and in our time. So it's about people, work at relating, it's about places, so consider relocating. I'll just leave that one hanging until a little bit later so that some of you might stay awake. And then it's about participation, so be open to relearning. See what I've done there? P, positioning, for L, leadership, for mission. So P, people, place, participation. L, how does that work? <laughs> there, there is an L in there, but they all start with re. Okay? You'll remember them now. Okay. Relate. A bit forced, but it's there. Relate. Relocate and relearn. To be positioned for mission, relate, relocate, relearn.
Okay, now you can go to sleep. And the rest of us can continue through um, our exploration of Acts. Um, it was Charles who asked me to um, speak about this particular passage, and so I'm going to do that for at least the first three minutes. Um, so he made me do it. Um, but I think actually it's really important. It's the text that was provided to accompany this session in your um, literature and program. It's Acts chapter 13. And I remember how this came about. Um, we were talking about something else. Hey, we were talking about elders and eldership. And just as an off-the-cuff kind of question, you said, give me an example. Is that an example? Or no, you didn't say it like that. You said, no. is there an example? in the New Testament of an eldership team that is functioning well. And I thought, well, I can think of a team. I don't know how you'd call them all elders, but a team that was functioning extremely well. And it's in that great church of Antioch, the Antioch church, which is phenomenal, possibly the most significant single church in the history of Christian mission. It was from this church that missionaries were sent out to new places and new people, and out of their work came so many other branches of Christian mission and, um, and of the, the, the kingdom of God. So, this church in Antioch was quite spectacular. It was also the very first intercultural church, truly intercultural, when people who were of Jewish background and ancestry were combining with people of non-Jewish ancestry and culture in the one church. This was so strange that local people had to come up for a new name for them. Up until then, the Jesus followers had been a Jewish sect, Messianic Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And people could make sense of that in the Roman Empire. Then there were lots of other religions and clubs and societies that had their own particular characteristics. But this group was different. What could they call them? Not Jews, not a Greek or Roman cult. What were they? And they got a nickname. The nickname that came from listening to them talk and looking at their activity and discovering what really characterized them, what was the distinctive. And the locals called them the Christianoi, the Christ people, because they're always talking about the Christ. And they worship the Christ, and they want to serve the Christ, and they're excited about the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, who is the Savior of the world. What a beautiful challenge that is to us. What would your neighbors call your church? if it didn't have a name, and they had to describe it by what they see and observe. Well, I'll let you try that one. I won't make any attempt because um, it could be maybe insulting or, un or unfair, but it's a good challenge to have. What would the people around us call us if they had to describe us to somebody else? Because that's what was happening in Antioch. There's this group that um, things are happening, and they're seen gathering in houses and this sort of thing, and people are saying, who are these people? What is going on? Well, you know, one of my friends has become one of them. How do you explain it? And they say, oh, it's like, it's like, like Christianoi, the, the, these Christ people. I don't know who Christ is or what Christ is, but that's what they're about. What are we about? And what is our distinctive in the eyes of our neighbors? And so, in this church, we read about a team of people, a ministry team, 
And this is what happened. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And I really want to focus just in verse 1, so I'll read it again. <laughs> now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. It's not immediately obvious, but when you look at those names and do a little bit of digging, what a diverse group of people. As far as we can tell, we can't be 100% sure, as far as we can tell, none of them were actually local to Antioch. They'd all come from elsewhere. Now, at this point, I have to make another apology. The apology is I don't have a PowerPoint. <laughs> I did try. I really, really tried. And I've had three deadlines and I've missed them all. And each time I've been sitting there trying to nail it, nail it, nail it, but it just hasn't come together because people think, you know, I'm one of those that is always preparing right up to the last minute. Assume, so I prepare at the last minute. No, I prepare from the first minute. So the first day that Charles asked me, I was jotting down some notes. And I keep going, I just can't stop preparing. That's my problem, I can't stop. Because there's always a thought that maybe, and also in a, in a thing like this, you know, we're coming to the conclusion of a time together. What is God saying? You know, of the hundreds of things that could be said about the Bible, what are the two or three things that, that this group of people in this place and in the places where we're being joined by live streaming, what are the few things that God really wants us to hear? And I need to be attentive to that. And sometimes if I do the PowerPoint in advance, by the time it gets to the event, it's like, no, that's what I thought it was going to be, but actually it's different. However, um, God has a way of turning disaster into success. I don't have a PowerPoint, and so you're going to have to make up the pictures in your own heads, okay? And that could be even better. There are some folk who prefer radio to TV because the pictures are better, you know, because the pictures are in your own mind. So instead of me finding a picture of a diverse group of people, okay? You get inside your heads and your hearts. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> this isn't, don't worry, Andrew, you're not going to be dancing like a monkey when I snap my fingers. It's not that kind of show, okay? <laughs> I just say, go inside. I'm not hypnotizing you, okay? <laughs> but I'm tempted. <laughs> But if you go inside your head, and would you picture your church's leadership team, okay? Or ministry team, something like that. Just picture it. And do a little audit of the diversity factor. And now, well, some of you are picturing a very diverse group. Some of you are picturing a group who, when you look at it, whoa, 
pretty similar. You know, cookie-cutter types get to be leaders in our church. Um, now picture in your church community or wider fellowship or group of people that you engage with, picture a diverse group of people from that population. So these are people who are already, you know, in or around the church, but they're different to the majority group. Well, some of the majority group can be in there, but what about the others? Can you picture some more? Can you get to four, five, six people? Now, what if those four, five, six people were the leadership team? Would your church be different? Would it be able to think and imagine different things? Would it be able to be attentive to God in a different way? Because you see, this group was the group of people in the first generation of Christian believers who were able uniquely to hear God say, I have a heart for this world, and I want people from your church to be involved in what I'm doing elsewhere. It takes a diverse group of people to have their imaginations and hearts and wills open to God's desire for more than them and their place and their people. There's Barnabas. Now, we know he's a Jew. Um, he was in Jerusalem, but he was from Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Um, but Barnabas, a Cypriot, and we know he was a wealthy person because he had property, seemed to have property in Cyprus as well as in Jerusalem. He was able to sell it and make that available to meet the needs of the new population of Jesus followers that came about through the day of Pentecost. So, and he was well respected in Jerusalem as a leader of the church there. That's Barnabas. Then there's Simeon called Niger. Niger is the Greek term, which is a Latin loan word, niger, black. So it's Black Simon. Where's he likely to be from? Very likely from Africa. And there are various Africans who appear in the pages of the New Testament as indeed of the old. Then Lucius of Cyrene. Where's Cyrene? Cyrene was what the Romans called the whole place from North Africa up, to, up through the Mediterranean, to the middle of the Mediterranean. Again, North Africans. So we've got a dark-skinned African. We've got a North African. We've got a Cypriot Jew. And then we've got Manaen, and uh, my translation says a member of the court of Herod the ruler. The, the Greek term is actually a suntrophos. Trophing has to do with eating. And still use that in a slang term. Soon means together with. And it means that he, it's it really, this is the word for, for um, feeding a child, nursing a child. And what happened is that when a royal family or a very wealthy family had a child, um, it was given to a servant or a slave woman who had just had a child and who was therefore lactating so that this woman's milk could feed the new prince. And so you get these two, it was quite a common thing that you get these two people who, um, one from royal birth and the other probably slave birth or a servant, who are basically weaned at the breast of the same mother. They're soon trophoi. They suck from the same breast. 
And that's a pretty close relationship, frankly. <laughs> it's not one I know from experience, but um, it was quite common for those children then to grow up together and be best friends in childhood, and often that continued on into adulthood. So very likely, Manaen was in that sort of relationship to Herod, which means that he was brought up in the opulence and power of the Herodian court. Interesting sideline for those who do New Testament studies. Um, some people think that Luke, the author, the author of Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts, he seems to know a lot about the Herodian dynasty, the Herods. He mentions several of them, and he's got good details. Maybe he got it from this guy, Manaen, who'd been brought up in the court and as a friend and companion of, of Herod. This also gives us a clue as to his age, because um, by this time, that Herod would have been about 65 years old, and so presumably he's the same age, you know, weaned at the same breast. And so he's 65, so there's a generational difference as well. Saul is probably early middle age, I would now generously call it, you know, um, and so a bit younger than, than Manian. So just imagine this group together. They're from different places, they're geographically different, they all have an affinity to their Jewish ancestry at this point, that's true, but their culture, their lived culture is different from different parts of the world, and their different socioeconomic circumstances. I mean, Paul, Saul, his family had Roman citizenship. He's born in Tarsus, a Greek academic city. Um, his family were Roman citizens somehow, but he was brought up and trained in Jerusalem, so he's got all these things going on, Roman citizenship, Greek culture, Jewish ancestry, and training. And now he is linked up here in Antioch with uh, this other group, Africans and Cypriots, and then with this sort of senior figure who probably uh, had a lot of dignity, and maybe, we're only guessing, maybe was a little more restrained, you know, aware of the protocols and those sort of things. Can you imagine the, oh, oh, well, we should really take great care over the process and what we do here, and what's Saul saying? <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> There's a challenge. <laughs> but geographically, culturally, maybe linguistically, although they would all be able to speak Greek as a common language, and generationally, there's difference, there's diversity. Some of you think that can't work in leadership. I know that because some of you have told me. When I say to churches, how diverse is your leadership? They say, well, you know, it only works if, if people all understand each other. And that can be an unfortunate and unnecessary assumption. By understand each other, they're meaning, you know, very high level of the same majority language. Um, you know, like one church, I shall not name any church. Um, in fact, names and places will be changed for the sake of um, security, mine. Um, <laughs> but I had this, this, this beautiful invitation for nominations for leadership role to the church. And it was a church that was quite diverse in its membership, much less diverse in its leadership. And they were trying to break that. And so they said, nominations are invited of any member of any of our congregations, no matter, you know, whatever culture or, or, or group. And I thought, this is awesome. They're really making progress. And then there was a little codicil at the end that said, um, <clears throat> excellence in written and spoken English is essential. 
Now, that kind of undoes what the first bit does. But just an assumption of the majority group, this is how we function. You know, we, we, we do business properly. We send out discussion papers. We, re we produce reports. We do all this work. We're basically, you know, like, um, like the board of a business. And that's how we operate. How can we operate together if people are not able to read all the pages and pages of documents and write their proposals? And uh, that just excludes so many people. Do you know the criterion that they seem to have? Are you gifted to serve God? And as a team, can you pray together? How about that as a criterion? Being able to pray together is essential. And it doesn't matter if you're praying in another language or if you're praying in English that is kind of a bit broken or, or dialect-ridden like Scottish English or something like that, you know, that's okay because there's the sense of the heart. And as they pray together, they discern God's way. We have to change our criteria if we're to make real progress in repositioning our leadership for mission by relating with intentionality across barriers of difference and diversity. That's what we have to do, and that's the challenge. I was at a mission conference in the UK um, a couple of years ago, and this was a conference that, uh, you know, it was, a quite, it was a kind of an academic-type conference. It was all high-level in terms of the thought that had gone into it, the papers that were presented and so on. And there was one paper about reaching the indigenous people. And it was quite, the, you know, the, the, the presenter um, was a practitioner and academic, and he was basically bearing his soul and saying how, how distressed he was that the, the, his church wasn't making more progress in reaching the indigenous people. And he said, you know, we were sent to, I was sent to, to my place of mission. I was sent by God to reach the natives, but I've got a church full of people like me. What are we doing wrong? Now, the, the speaker was not a Brit. It was Dr. Tani Omedeya, who's the African pastor and leader of the Temple of Praise in Liverpool, in England. He's talking about reaching the English. He said, I was sent to England to reach the heathen English, but we can't get through, we can't break through to these indigenous people. And so he says, what we've discovered is that we have to lower our standards for leadership if we're going to get indigenous people come on board. <laughs> I mean, genuinely. Yeah, and, and his church, look it up, Temple of Praise, Liverpool. And um, just phenomenal what's, what's going on there. Um, one of the largest churches in England. And um, doing lots of stuff in all manner of areas of social service and ministry and, and, and so on. But, but he says, you see, we just have to accept, and most of the people in the, in the room were Africans who are missionaries to the UK, because it was a conference of African missionaries to Europe. Um, African and Scottish missionaries to England, I think. <laughs> we had a commonality. Um, but, but he gave this example. He says, for example, our people expect that a deacon is going to be able to pray, and we just have to accept that English people can't pray. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. But he didn't mean that they don't pray, it's just mean they don't pray, you know. <laughs> 
And so his sort of thing is, um, you know, oh, so loving Lord, oh, Lord Almighty, Lord of all the earth, come down in power and let us see you. You know, that's praying. And then you get the local up, and it's a, oh, well, Lord, thank you for today. We hope you'll bless us. Amen. It's not. (laughs) And so for his people, it's like, oh, man, you know, they're not really spiritual. They can't pray. And he says, no, we have to think differently. If we're building for the future, we've got to have indigenous people in leadership positions, so we've just got to lower our standards and expect a bit less from them, you know, and not judge them by the way we want to see and experience church. Um, He's trying to reach people like Andy Shudel, you know. (laughs) Where is Andy? (laughs) Yes, amen. That is also, of course, the language problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I think, you, you know, flip that round. Um, Alan talked about learning, you know, from the global church for the local church. Um, how about learning from the missionaries from elsewhere to here? There are so many people who are here with a call from God to come here and participate in the mission of God. Who are they? Do they even get scope within our churches? Um, I'd better move on because I was going to say a lot more about that, but um, it's now 8.45 <laughs> and going down. Um, people, so position yourself for leadership, and I mean this in all seriousness, by being intentional about building partnerships and relationships with people who are different. Because in your church and in your wider community of faith in Jesus, there will be people whom God has brought here for mission and whom God has gifted for ministry. Recognize them. Get rid of the blinkers that prevent you from seeing who they are so that they can be welcomed and released. And if the language is a bit of a problem, well, work with it. Ask the question, is there a heart-to-heart connection? Can we pray together? Can we hear God together? Let's work from there. People. Second, place. And I'm not talking here about places in terms of other countries. Plenty of that in the book of Acts. You know, gospel going all over over the, the, the world. But I'm talking about the specific places in which worship and witness and ministry and discipleship and support and learning happens. Now, time to make yourself another picture in lieu of a PowerPoint slide. Think of your church. Picture the places, the specific places, you know, I'm talking about a room, a building, something like that, within which worship happens and discipleship happens, and um, support, and pastoral care, and prayer, and all of those activities of church. What are those places? And then switch that picture off and roll to the next slide, and picture the homes of the people in your church. And they'll be so different In our context, there'll be so many different types of homes. In Richard Baxter's context, there was one type of home, wasn't there? There were homes, houses, little houses on these streets in Kenilworth, all the same like Coronation Street, and the same types of family units living in all of them. Not so now. We've got 
one-person households, a large proportion of households in New Zealand, especially the cities, are one-person households. We've got uh, sort of nuclear family households. We've got extended family households. We've got flatting households. We've got rented accommodation households. We've got hostel households. We've got all manner of configurations and places and spaces in which life is lived. Now, what if worship and praise and prayer, and learning, and discipling, and pastoring, and supporting, and growing, and mission took place in those places. How do you position yourself as leaders for that? Well, this is where I use that term, relocate. Not necessarily relocate your church building, although in some cases that's a good thing to do, but relocate some of the energy and resource put into mission and put into ministry and put into all, relocate that to the places, the context, the concrete contexts in which people are actually living their lives. And immediately you find yourself forced out of a paradigm of the individual and into a paradigm of community and connection. Notice that was Baxter. He could, what would he measure? It's quite challenging, and it's challenging in the development world to think, what do you measure if you're doing a project or an, an intervention in a community? Because what you measure is the indication of what you value. So what do you measure when you say, how's the church doing? It's so tempting, even for those of us who have a theology that would sink otherwise, first thing that comes to mind, how many people are coming to Sunday services? And it's easy to measure. You can usually get somebody walking around the back and, you know, just inconspicuously click, 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 click. You know, you can do that. Um, and it's easy. You can say, how's it going? Oh, well, you know, last year there were only 264 people on average in our Sunday morning service. Now there's 270, um, et cetera, et cetera. We're doing okay. But how do you measure the growth of faith and Christ-likeness in homes and in hostels and, in, and on marae and in the context where people's lives are lived, because that, that's where mission is actually happening. And some of you experienced a lot of that last night, didn't you, as you went out into local contexts here and tried to think of a different way of envisaging, of imagining the life of this church, but that is a dispersed life that is also rooted in specific communities. So how do we position our leadership for mission? By considering relocating some of those activities, some of that energy into those different contexts. And we see that in Acts, the house of Lydia. Paul had to relocate there from his little riverside Baptist church. Remember, he went by the river in Philippi. He found some women who were worshiping God. Um, Lydia became a believer. Um, things were going well. And then Lydia throws a real spanner in the works, and she comes up to them and says, why don't you come into my house and stay there? Make my house your home, your base. And it seems they hesitated a bit, because then it goes on to say, she asked them, she pressed them on it, so do you consider me to be, able to be faithful to the Lord? And they said, oh, yeah. So I said, so, deal done. My home can be the base for mission and for church. And it was. 
And so they had to come up with new songs. You know, it was no longer down by the riverside. You know? <laughs> it was in Lydia's house, there's a little place, and there we find the God of grace. And <laughs> I think it's number 406 in the green book. <laughs> the authorized version. But, uh, and then, of course, there's not only the, 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 the home, but there's the workplace. Priscilla and Aquila, their place of work, which was also their home, because that's the way it worked then. You lived, you lived and worked in the one place. And Paul goes into their place and joins them as a worker and works with them. And he did the same thing elsewhere in First Thessalonians. It seems he'd done that in Thessalonica. And he says to them, you remember how I worked with my hands while I was with you? And then he goes on to come all this intimate stuff. I care for you like a mother with a nursing child. You know, just like the family that's all sitting around in the one room. Says, that, that's like me with you. Uh, like a dad who's making sure that his kids are learning the right way. That, that's me. I'm showing you always the way that I imitate Christ so that you can imitate me. Amazing discipleship. Amazing witness. How do we do that? Could we position ourselves as leaders for mission by considering relocating some of our time and energy into the homes and workplaces of the people who are the workforce in the mission? of God. And then the last thing, participation. Mission is all about participation. Participation in what God is doing. You remember the, the disciples, Jesus spent 40 days with them after His resurrection in, in Acts chapter 1, teaching them about the kingdom of God, showing with many evidences that He was alive. And then at the end of the 40 days intensive, they had an exam except they asked the question, and it was the wrong question. They asked Jesus, so, okay, you've been talking about the kingdom for these 40 days, and it's like a student evaluation that we get. I've sat through this the whole course, and you still haven't told me what I signed up for. You know, so is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See how they're thinking? We, we don't want the kind of airy-fairy out there stuff. We want to just tell us, when are you going to do this thing for us that we've been longing for? When are you going to restore our kingdom to our place and to our people? When are you going to do this for us, Jesus, now that you're all so powerful and you've defeated death? And Jesus says, that's not for you to know, but you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you Amen. in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It wasn't a matter of getting Jesus to fulfill their mission. It was a matter of them offering themselves to Jesus as servants of His mission. And His mission was bigger than theirs. And His mission was to take them further than theirs possibly could have and demand more of them than they could have known but also give them so much more as they become participants in the mission of God, as God who brings the whole world under the Lordship of Christ, invites them into participation with Him. What is the missio dei, the mission of God? It is the love of the Father flowing out, to, oriented by the Lordship of the Son and energized by the life of the Spirit. That's mission, and that's what we're invited into participation with 
And if we'd been smart, we could have put AJ's beautiful slide up there right now. Instead, we're on the same page. This is what we're invited into. But in order to participate in that, we have to not only learn, but relearn. Peter and Cornelius. What did God have in mind when He sent the apostle Peter to the household of Cornelius the Gentile? Was it that Peter had to go there so that Cornelius could hear the good news of Jesus? Well, God had already spoken to Cornelius through an angel. God was not short of options if it came to having a communicator. God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius so that Peter could learn how big and great and broad is the scope of God's love and the extent of God's grace. That's what Peter needed to learn. And it was a risk. He risked confusion, and he got it. He risked discomfort, and he got it in spades. He risked criticism, and there was plenty of that. But as he learned in the Gentile home of Cornelius that God was there, and God accepted these Gentiles, and God was pleased with them, and the Spirit of God was energizing them for life and ministry, Peter came back and said, what could we do? God's ahead of us. We just have to catch up. So, as leaders, are you willing to unlearn what you thought was the way God worked in order to relearn what it means to participate in the mission of our loving and powerful God? Norera, tena koto, tena koto, tena koto katoa. you get here? Did the Baptist NZ app have anything to do with it? Because that's where the gospel renewal stories shared by our faith communities are at. In the midst of more, Baptist NZ on App Store and Google Play.